You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. To be able to open up 1 Thessalonians again with you this week. Uh, as you just heard, we're into chapter 5, into the final chapter now, and Paul's going to continue uh, really what he began last week in speaking about the second coming of Jesus. Uh, but before we get there, I just want to remind you uh, of the good news, uh, the good news that today is the last Sunday of winter, the very last Sunday of winter. And uh, that is good news, mainly good news for most of us, um, the, the, that spring is coming, that it will arrive on Wednesday, that nothing can stop spring from arriving, not even a pandemic can prevent spring from arriving, is good news for most of us. The idea of, of warmer weather, longer days, blooming flowers, is good news for most of us. I say most of us because for some of us, the coming of spring is a death sentence. We, we just sang in that song, I don't know if you picked up, we, we, talk, we sang about the fragrance of spring uh, being a good thing. For some of us, it's the fragrance of death because if you're like me and you have suffered all of your life with chronic hay fever, then it's a mixed bag the coming of spring. It's mixed. I mean, we, we, yeah, we like the, the sunnier days. We like the, uh, the evening walks. We like the blooming flowers, but we, we don't like the constant <laughs> debilitating fever that we get because we're allergic to the air. That's not good news for some of us. And that, that idea that a coming event, a coming day can be both brilliant news for some and terrible news for others is exactly what comes to mind when we read this passage from Paul because what he speaks about is not the coming of spring but the coming of the Lord. Remember last week he introduced this concept of the second coming of Jesus and here he's going to sort of fold into that idea a lot of Old Testament themes, namely the day of the Lord. If you uh, know your way around the Bible, you know that the day of the Lord is a big theme throughout Scripture. If you were with us, I guess, a couple of years ago, uh, when we taught through the minor prophets, that is the smaller prophetic books of the Old Testament, you'll know that uh, we preached a sermon on each book, and a lot of those sermons kind of centered around this idea of the day of the Lord. And so it's a big theme in the, the Scriptures from start to finish, and it's it, the day of the Lord is basically the idea that a day is coming when God is going to show up and in his perfection, in his white hot righteousness and justice, he is going to judge the earth and make all things right. So God himself is going to come and he is going to make his creation reflect his own perfection. He is going to do away with everything that's broken, everything that's bad, and he's going to make it all beautiful. And so on the face of it, this sounds like a wonderful thing. It sounds amazing. It sounds like what we've been hoping and praying for all of our lives. Like this sense we have, even Christians and non-Christians alike, this, this, this sense that we have that things aren't as they should be. That there is such a thing as injustice. There is such a thing as right and wrong. In spite of our best efforts in the last hundred years to do away with those kinds of categories, we know deep down in our gut that there is such a thing as right 
There is such a thing as wrong. And so the idea of God coming and making everything righteous, that is it putting everything in order, doing away with everything that's stained, purifying his creation, is a beautiful thought. But is it? Is it a beautiful thought? If you think about it for a little while, if, if there is a coming day, the day of the Lord, if there is this coming day where God is going to come and get rid of, destroy everything that's wrong, then what does that mean for me? There's this apocryphal story. I'm pretty sure it's apocryphal, but it's a good story, and that's why we kind of perpetuate it. This, this story that the great G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite authors, great Catholic theologian, and um, he, he apparently, the story goes that the London Times ran this, uh, this essay competition and invited people to answer the question, what is wrong with the world? And so people wrote in and gave their opinions about what was wrong. And G.K. Chesterton apparently wrote in and just said, what is wrong with the world? I am. Yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. And the reason that that story, true or not, is, is kind of sticks around is because we resonate with it. It's right. It's true. All of us could write that essay. What's wrong with the world? I am what's wrong with the world. In spite of our best efforts in social media, modern social media, to blame everyone else for everything else, the fact is, at heart, we know that we are contributing to the world's problems. So, if God is coming to make all things right and to destroy all things that are wrong, what does that mean for me who is wrong? This is the devastating message of the prophet Amos who spoke to the people of Israel who were so self-assured they were so they believed so much in their own goodness and their 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 kind of pride of place in God's creation that they didn't know that the day of the Lord was going to be devastating to them this is what he writes and it's poetic it's prophetic and it's devastating. In Amos chapter 5. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. What will the day of the Lord be for you? It will be darkness, not light. It will be like a man who flees from a lion only to have a bear confront him. He goes home and rests his hand against the wall only to have a snake bite him. Won't the day of the Lord be darkness rather than light, even gloom without any brightness in it? The prophet Zephaniah expands on this, and you could just point at, you know, throw a dart at any of the prophets, and they'll tell you something devastating about the day of the Lord. In Zephaniah chapter 1, we did a whole sermon on the day of the Lord when we looked at the book of. Zephaniah in that Minor Prophets series and this is what he says the great day of the Lord is near near and rapidly approaching listen the day of the Lord 
Then the warrior's cry is bitter. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and total darkness, a day of ram's horn and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the high corner towers. I will bring distress on mankind and they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Their silver and their gold will be unable to rescue them on the day of the Lord's wrath. The whole earth will be consumed by the fire of his jealousy for he will make a complete yes a horrifying end of all the inhabitants of the earth. This is the day of the Lord. It's a terrible day. It's a devastating day. It's a day of justice and righteousness which will spell the end of all sin and brokenness. Now, listen, I know that for some of us, we have been taught or brought up or come to our own conclusion that the Old Testament God, he is like an angsty teenager. He's just always grumpy and upset and we don't know why and he doesn't know how to talk about it and so he just takes it out on the people around him. Right? Some of you have those teenagers living with you. And then, you know, coming into the New Testament, he's matured, he's mellowed, he's grown up, he's Jesus now. He pats lambs and, I don't know, sings to doves, right? That's the idea that some of us have, the caricature that some of us have. But it's so very much not the case. This idea of the day of the Lord coming and it meaning devastation and desolation is, is uniform from Old Testament to New Testament. In the New Testament, we see actually the the whole picture a lot more clearly. We see that those judgments on Israel that the prophets pointed towards, those judgments that came on Israel in their defeat and desolation and exile, the, the coming judgment that would come 20 years after Paul writes these words at the destruction of Jerusalem, the sacking of it, all of these judgments, defeats, were just foreshadowing the ultimate day of the Lord that was yet to come. It is the day that comes and arrives with the second coming of Jesus. All of those other defeats were just foreshadowing the ultimate day which is yet to come. And the New Testament adds to this picture of the day of the Lord. It adds this this idea that when it comes, it's going to be sudden and it's going to be unforeseen see if you can pick up the thread that runs through these three passages first of all Jesus speaking of it in Luke chapter 12 he says be ready for service and have your lamps lit that is be prepared you are to be like people waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks they can open the door for him at once Blessed 
will be those servants the master finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will get ready, have them recline at the table, then come and serve them. If he comes in the middle of the night or even near dawn and finds them alert, blessed are those servants. But know this, if the homeowner had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also be ready because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The Apostle Peter picks up on this theme of the imminent and unexpected return of Jesus. And and he says in chapter 3, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, the elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Exposed. And then Paul, in our passage, if you want to pick it up, verse 1 to 3. About the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. When they say, peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. All of this is pretty distressing stuff. All of the images that we've seen so far are distressing images. Devastation, destruction, judgment. Which is strange because we saw last week and this whole section just about to the end of this letter is written for the Thessalonians' comfort, for their encouragement. Paul's opening his heart to them as their pastor and wanting to comfort them as they consider the second coming of Jesus. So where is the comfort here? The comfort, the encouragement, the reassurance is in the good news that there is a place of safety that God has made available to all people in the midst of judgment. There is a place of safety. Another of our minor prophet friends, Joel, He talked about it in chapter 2. He saw this foreshadowing of what was to come. He said, I will display wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved for there will be an escape for those on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem as the Lord promised among the survivors the Lord calls a place of safety a place of refuge a place of salvation everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved Paul obviously picks up on that in the book of Romans where he quotes it in chapter 10. 
but he also picks up on it here in our passage this morning. Let's look at it, verse 9 to 10. He said, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Whether we are awake or asleep, remember he used that terminology last week, whether we have died in the Lord, uh, whether, whether we're still alive and awake or we have died and we're asleep, irrespective of where we find ourselves in the course of salvation history, we can be safe, we can have salvation in Christ. Why? Because he died for us. He died for us. So here's the thing. Here's why there's good news in the midst of all of this talk of devastation and desolation. There's good news because for those of us in Christ, the day of the Lord has already happened. The day of the Lord came in miniature on the cross That when Jesus died for all of those who would come to him, all of those who would throw themselves on his mercy, all of those who would find refuge and salvation in him, for those he took on himself in that moment as he died, he took on the day of the Lord and its wrath and judgment. So if you are listening to this and you are in Christ, you are trusting in the sufficiency of his death and resurrection, then for you, the day of the Lord is in the past. The day of the Lord came, God saw your sin and justly judged you. And all of his wrath and anger and jealousy and desolation fell on his son. And you were kept safe in him. That's the good news. That's the word of comfort that Paul has for those Thessalonians and for you this morning. In Christ you are safe. You are insulated against the coming judgment. So while it's true that the day of the Lord is yet to come, and that it will come in an unexpected way, like a thief in the night, those of us who are in Christ need not fear the coming of that thief. We are safe and secure because of Jesus' death in our place and for our sin. That's good news. That is good, good news if, like me, you know that what you really deserve is desolation and destruction. If you know in your bones that standing before a holy God would mean nothing but absolute, white-hot wrath, then my God, is it good news? that Jesus in our place has already taken that upon himself. 
I can't hear the Zoom feed right now, but I hope there's a whole bunch of amens echoing throughout. That's good news. And it's such good news that it should shape every aspect of our lives. That fact should shape every part of our lives so that we spend the short time that we have on the face of this earth, that we spend every day of it making all of life all about Jesus. It should have that big an impact. We ought to live each day full of gratitude. You know, he says at the end of this letter, he says, uh, verse 16, rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything. This is God's will. Yeah, that makes sense. If it's true that what we deserve is utter destruction and what we have been given is eternal life, if that's true, then yeah, irrespective of my circumstances, my bank balance, my, the state of my health, the state of my marriage, how good my, my job is, whether I have a job or not, like in spite of all of these peripheral things, I ought to be able to live in gratitude, rejoicing always, praying constantly, giving thanks in everything. If this old, old story is true, then it should shape my entire life. Not only what I choose to do, but how I do it. Full of gratitude. It should also give me this keen desire and zeal to invite people into the safe place to extend the invitation that Jesus made himself, that all who come to him will be given eternal life, will be rescued from eternal destruction and welcomed into eternal life. That that I ought to have, as a result of coming to know this myself, this deep desire to see those people around me made in the image of God, made to reflect his goodness and beauty and truth and, and to extend to them this invitation, come in, come in, further up and further in, come up and in to the safe place. Jesus has provided this safe harbor for all who would trust in him and find their their souls in residence in him. I should live with this great sense of gratitude and this, this, this not like a, a kind of fearful desperation to tell people about the coming wrath, but rather I think just this, this great, buoyant, joyful, happy desire to welcome people in. To know that no one is precluded. No one is excluded. (laughs) 
And then I think we, we ought to approach each day and the days that God has given us. We should approach each one and thinking, like, how can I prepare the way for the day of the Lord? How can I prepare the ground for Jesus to return? How can I be prepared? Remember, that's the language that Jesus used in those, the, the teaching that he gave about his second coming, the one that we looked at about the bridegroom returning after the wedding. Like, it's preparation. How can I approach each day just, just with this sense of anticipation? Not doing what Christians have sometimes done and just like t- turning away from the world and building a bunker and buying lots of canned food and and, and just hoping that Jesus will come back soon, wasting our lives, being of no good to anybody, but rather seeing the world around us as this, this ground for preparation. The King is coming. Let's prepare the way of the Lord. Here's the tragedy, friends. The tragedy is that for some of us, and probably for all of us at varying times, for some of us, this news that we have a safe place, this place of salvation in Christ, that 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 news for some of us dulls us. For some reason, I don't know what it is exactly, but the idea that Jesus has been gracious to me and taken upon himself the wrath that I deserve and now my future is not judgment but welcome into a new creation, everlasting life, free from condemnation. For some of us, that actually dulls us and sends us to sleep. It has the opposite effect of what we've just been talking about. Gratitude, invitation, preparation. It puts us to sleep. And we spend all of our Christian lives just sleepwalking. It's a tragedy. This manifests itself for for people, I think, who, who see this kind of salvation that Jesus offers, they see it as kind of like something that they've opted into. It's like an insurance policy that they've taken out. It's a a fire insurance policy against the coming judgment. And so, yeah, I got that. Now I'm going to be busy with what I'm doing. I can just, I can, I can lean on the insurance policy. It's like something that we've we've upgraded. We've, We've ticked the box and we pay an extra few dollars a month. And so we're covered now. I was buying this computer the other day um, because, I don't know, I wanted a new computer. My current computer is 10 years old and there's nothing wrong with it. This is what's wrong with the world today, by the way. There's nothing wrong with it and yet I'm still buying another one because, I don't know, it's so shiny. Anyway, I was buying this computer, it's sitting next to Renee looking at what we could afford and what we could get. And, you know, there's some options. You can get more gigabytes of something and faster RAMs. And uh, 
And I don't know exactly what that means. So anyway, I was trying to figure out, is this worth 300 bucks to get this bigger extra thing? And I, I, I don't know. You tick the box and, you know, you know it's, it's an upgrade. It's better. It'll, it'll be better in the long run. That's how some of us approach salvation. Like, my, my life is pretty good. No matter what happens, I live in Australia in the 21st century. It's going to be pretty damn good. And you can throw a pandemic at us and life is still good. I, I ordered Indian food on Friday night and it came to my house hot and I spent the rest of the night watching a movie with my wife and kids and eating Indian food. That's amazing. Life is good and it's going to be good just about no matter what. So yeah, I'll upgrade to Jesus and it might prove to be worthwhile in the end. I'll take out the insurance policy and in the end maybe everything will work out for the best. Maybe I'll get an upgrade of eternal life. When we, when we approach this story, when we approach the day of the Lord and the salvation that God has made available to us like that, then we sleepwalk through life. Then Christianity is this, oh yeah, well, I, I am all of these things, and then I, I ticked that Christian box as well. I did it on the census. Church of England, right? Yeah. And the tragedy of that is almost too overwhelming to describe. It's almost more devastating than, than the day of the Lord itself. What Christians like that need to hear, and I said some of us, all of us are in there and out of there at some point, hopefully out of it more than we're in it. But for those of us who have just started drifting a little, started sleepwalking a little, the message from the scriptures to us is wake up. Wake up. Be alert. Do you guys want me to stop? Be alert. Jesus says it in Luke chapter 21. This is his advice for us, his call to us, his exhortation. He says, be on your guard so that your minds are not dulled from carousing. That's like uh, going on a pub crawl, uh, letting yourself go carousing, drunkenness, and the worries of life, or that day will come on you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come on all who live on the face of the whole earth. And Paul says it very similarly in our passage in verse 6 to 8. He says, So then, so then, let us not sleep. Let us not sleep like the rest, but let us stay awake and be self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation. Both Jesus and Paul tell us clearly, be alert, stay awake. Both of them mention drunkenness in there as a, 
as a kind of marker of those who are sleepwalking. I don't know what that means exactly for us. It might mean something particularly for you, so we don't have time to get into it now, but let those who have ears, let them hear. The warning is to stay alert, stay awake. Don't sleepwalk through this life. Friends, this is why we need each other so much. This whole like lockdown, separation, can't be in each other's lives thing has exposed this so much. Any of you who are thinking to yourself, well, maybe I'll just do online church forever now because I'm in my pajamas and it's better. Don't. Don't do it. You will end up, like being in your pajamas will be apt because you will be sleepwalking by the end of it. We need each other. We need to be in each other's lives. We need to be elbowing each other, prodding, poking each other, agitating each other. Do you know how hard it is to stay awake if you're alone? Try and stay awake all through the night if you're alone. It's almost impossible. But if you have one or two or a hundred other people with you, agitating you, poking you, shaking you, then you can stay awake. We need each other. That's why he ends this passage in verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another, build one another up as you're already doing. You're doing it, keep going. Don't fade, don't drop off to sleep. day of the Lord is coming. It's a day of judgment and justice and righteousness and recreation and resurrection. It's a day when everything wrong will come untrue. Jesus is coming to judge the earth that he created and to do justice on the earth. And there is a safe place, a place of salvation, refuge and hope for everyone who is in him. I want you to hear this invitation really clearly this morning. The invitation is one of free access to that place of salvation. It is unmerited, undeserving, free access to that place of safety. Jesus has made the way by taking upon himself the judgment of all who will trust in him. If you haven't yet received his mercy and grace, if you haven't yet enjoyed the freedom that comes with knowing that you are an adopted child of God, that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ, 
And please come. Come to Jesus. He has his arms stretched wide, just as they were on the cross, stretched wide to welcome all of those who would find refuge in him. If you haven't yet received that promise, then hear the warning. Judgment is coming. It is coming when we least expect it. It will be full and final and it will be right. So come. Come to the place of safety. Come to the place of life, everlasting life. Come and drink deeply of God's grace and forgiveness and then spend the rest of your days full of gratitude, extending the invitation to those who have not yet received it and preparing the way for the coming of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word that provides us with everything we need to know what the future holds. Then in the midst of great uncertainty for ourselves and a great deal of murkiness about our immediate future, when is this lockdown going to end? When is this pandemic going to be over? Is there life after COVID? All of this uncertainty in the midst of all of that, you give us some very clear pictures here. You are coming. You are coming soon. You are coming unexpectedly. And you are coming to make all things right. In the midst of these, the last days, Lord, all of the days from your resurrection and ascension to your coming again, these are the last days. And so in the midst of all of this, I pray, Father, that you would help us to be a community of people helping people stay awake. People helping people make all of life all about Jesus. I pray, Lord, even now, that we would, as brothers and sisters who belong to the day, that we would be self-controlled that we would put on the armor of faith and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation, that sure and certain hope that Jesus paid it all. Heavenly Father, make us here at Red Door people of the day. We pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.